you've all heard the story of the ugly duckling since you were a child. I, I actually went back and read it online because I knew the beginning and the end, but I didn't know the whole story. Uh, you might want to do that. The poor little ugly duckling who's uh, it was really a swan. Uh, his eggs ended up somehow in the mother duck's nest, and, and he was rejected and laughed at by the other ducklings. And, and then he, and he actually moved on to another pond, and the geese treated him the same way. And then he spent some time uh, kind of as a pet in the home, and uh, they were expecting him to lay eggs like a duck. He didn't. You know, it just over and over and over, the, the poor thing is rejected until he finally ends up Spending the winter alone, hiding and about starving to death. It's not until the next spring that he wanders upon a pond full of swans. And a swan there compliments him on his beautiful appearance and he's, he's shocked and he, he looks into the reflection of the water and, and sees that he is actually a swan and he is going to be a very beautiful and lovely creature. Hans Christian Andersen wrote that back in 1842, the Danish storyteller, Hans Christian Andersen, who reportedly, according to one thing I read, who reportedly himself was a tall and, I didn't say it, I just read it, a tall and ugly boy, <laughs> having a large nose and big feet and all, and all these things. So uh, I'm sure he wrote that story somewhat out of his own personal experience. The ugly duckling thought there was something wrong with him. That he didn't fit in. That he wasn't worthy. That he was only to be looked down upon and rejected. I tell you that because I think that was the mood of the Thessalonian church when Paul wrote this letter. Now, we, we've spent two or three weeks now, maybe more, talking about the major issue there. Because Paul had taught them about not only the Lord's dying for them, and, and not only had the Thessalonian church come to believe in Christ and and were faithful, and uh, they were doing a great job. I mean, Paul commends them in many, many ways. But he taught them about the second coming of Jesus, and after, afterwards, uh, after he left, and later on, uh, they began to experience some severe persecution. And I'm sure they begin to look around at one another and say, what, what, what's wrong? Why? Why doesn't God answer our prayers? Why, why are we going through this? And then they begin to wonder, well, maybe we missed the Lord's coming. Maybe we were left behind somehow. Maybe we misunderstood the, the Scripture and what Paul taught us. And Paul had to write Second Thessalonians and explain to them, look, and he gives them some very specific reasons why the Lord could not have come at this juncture. But that being the case, and, and having dealt with the, the facts of the matter, 
Paul's left with dealing with a church that's emotionally distraught, discouraged. And no doubt they're thinking, well, God must not think too highly of us to allow us to go through these terrible days that we're, we are experiencing. If today is not a day similar, it is certainly drawing closer for the church in modern day America. Christians are beaten down by the world, <clears throat> beaten up by Satan, and left to believe, I think, too, all too often that, well, maybe something's wrong with us. The world thinks we are foolish, uneducated, misfits, fanatics, and extremists. When all we want to do is love the Lord and serve Him. Where have we went wrong? Why do we feel so rejected? But you see, there's more to the story. Just like there was more to the story of the ugly duckling. Here in chapter 2, at the verse that we're ready to take up with, verse uh, 13, there's a, there's a definite change, uh, a transition, if you will, from doctrinal teaching to loving encouragement. And Paul begins to deal with them because he, because he knows that they're in this state of mind. He begins to deal with them in a very encouraging and loving and and helpful way. He wants to pick them up. And he begins by saying this in verse 13, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Hey, there's nothing wrong in, th- in, in, in fact. Praise God for who you are and where you are and what you're doing. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Now, that's a typical... Designation, we call each other brother, sister. But Paul adds something to it. He doesn't stop there. Look at it. He says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Now, that term beloved is a participle in the original that is in the Greek perfect tense, which, which means he was saying to them, you are those who have been loved. Perfect tense means it's, it's something that's already happened in the past, but the results are still there. It's still present. You have been loved and God still loves you to the same degree. As much as he loved you when Jesus died on the cross for you, he still loves you in the same way. You are his beloved. And my friends, that's what we have to remember this morning. 
If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are someone who has been loved by God. And his love has not come to an end, but it extends, continues, and it will never ever cease. My friends, we are the beloved, and we are not ugly. We are the Lord's children, God's children, the beloved. That's what we have to see here in verses 13 to 17 and understand. This being the case, and having made this point here, and by the way, verse 13, Paul hearkens back to chapter 1, verse 3. When he started this letter, before he got into all that doctrinal discussion of the second coming, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because of your faith, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So Paul's already said this, but he comes back to it. He hearkens back to it. He reminds them again of it. He gives them a renewed emphasis upon it. You are the beloved, and we thank God for you. And Paul, when he says we, he's talking about him and Timothy and, you know, all the others that normally traveled with him, Luke, Titus, and, and all of them, whoever was with him at that point. So being the Lord's beloved, having, having received again this thought, this beautiful picture that Paul has painted of them to begin with here in verse 13, we find there are two implications going forward down through verse 17 that Paul wants to draw from this reality, this fact. And these implications are critical. The first thing that the Thessalonians needed to do because they were loved of God was to wake up to whom they were. And that's what we need to do. Wake up to who we are. Understand our position. Understand our identity, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives two reasons to the Thessalonians. Two reasons why they need to wake up to whom they were. Reason number one, they had been chosen, just like we have been chosen. So we need to wake up to who we are because we have been chosen. Look at it again. We were bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now let's dissect that because that's, that is a mouthful. There's a lot of doctrine here. First of all, Paul says, God chose you. 
chose you. Now that's more or less like an English past tense. He's referring to something that happened. It's already happened. It's in the past. The Thessalonians had been chosen. Well, we have been chosen by God. Now, he says here, from the beginning, God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Now, uh, some uh, might think, well, he, does that mean from the beginning or that point in time in which they placed their faith in Jesus Christ? Well, no. From the beginning means from eternity past. The Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is beyond time. He stands outside of time. Time only means something to us in this created world. In eternity past, we were chosen. Before we were ever conceived, before we were ever born, before we ever entered this world, in eternity past, God chose you and me. He chose us to salvation, it says. It's interesting in the Greek, the preposition here, translated for, in the New King James, God chose you for salvation, is a Greek preposition which means the ultimate end or purpose of something. He's, he's not saying God just chose you to get saved, but God chose you to be saved and to enjoy all that that brings into reality going forward. God chose you in eternity past and he chose you for eternity future. For salvation in its completeness, in its complete fulfillment. Now he says through sanctification. Now another preposition here translated through means in connection with. So when we were saved... We were given eternal life. Now, we, we still have eternal life, but we still have eternal life to experience. And in conjunction or in accord or in, 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 in relation to that salvation, we have sanctification. The word sanctification is just an English translation of the Greek word for holiness. To be, it means to be made holy, to be separated from sin, but to be, more importantly, to become more like Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. You cannot emphasize separation from sin to the degree that you forget about being Christ-like. Christ never condoned sin, but he died for sinners. And my friends, you and I, each and every one of us are all sinners. But he loved us nonetheless. And even though our sanctification, our holiness will never become complete in this life, when he comes back, we will be like him. We will be completely and utterly sanctified or made holy. So that's a process. We, we should be getting more like Jesus Christ day by day as we live life. Through the help of the Spirit, because it says through the Spirit too. That's where the power comes. But we'll ultimately arrive at Christ's likeness when the Lord comes back. 
chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit or as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in our heart and soul to give us life, to empower us, and to enable us to become Christ-like. Because we can't do that on our own. We can't do that in our own effort. And then he gives a second reason. We have been called. Not only have we been chosen, but we have been called. Now, once again, same, uh, same tense of the verb here in the original, it indicates a past tense occurrence. But that's because Paul is writing to a group of believers who in the past were called. Now, their choice by God, their, their, their election by God, that's eternity past. But their calling, that was when Paul came and preached the gospel to them and they believed. Let's look at it here. He says, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in everybody's salvation, there are two aspects. There is the divine aspect of being chosen. That's God's sovereign choice that's involved. There is also our choice to believe in Jesus Christ. That's faith. For by grace are we saved through faith. There is a div- the divine aspect to our salvation. There is a human aspect in response to that choice and our personal decision to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you probably, some of you married couples probably have a real interesting story to tell about how you got together and eventually end up getting married. And I, I like to, I like to ask that question sometimes. And probably most of you could say, you know, it was just improbable. It just, it just, Transpired. I wasn't expecting it. It, it. it wasn't something I planned. It, it, it just, somehow God in His sovereignty and in His, uh, in, in His work just brought us together. Would you say that? Would you, would, would you raise your hand and say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I see hands all over the place. I know it's true in my life. Now, you might say that's the divine aspect. But you know what? Judging from the fact that you did get married, I would say that you had a human choice involved here. That that's what you wanted to do also. And that's who you wanted to marry. Does, does your choice and God's purpose and sovereign work in that come together perfectly? Absolutely. Absolutely. But so many Christians feel like they've got to take sides, like, well, I believe that God elected those who would be saved. Period. And then you have Christians over here on the other side, and they say, well, I believe that whosoever will may come. Period. And both... Both are wrong because both fail to understand 
But both has to be involved. Uh, Let me give you an example here. From Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I failed to alert the guys in the booth to put this up. I don't know if they can or not, but you have your Bibles there. You can turn to Ephesians 1, 4, where Paul says this to the Ephesian church. He says, just as he, that's a capital H, that's God, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You can't write that out of the Bible. I'm sorry. God chose. Okay, well now let's go to another verse. Let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews, uh, let's see. uh, I got it written down here somewhere. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews eleven six. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The Bible says both. The Bible says God chose. The Bible says It's up to us to believe. How do you reconcile those two? Now see, there's our problem right there. How do you reconcile those two statements? Because you find them both in the Scripture. The problem is we don't need to reconcile those two statements. We always get into a theological muddle when we try to put the two together. And understand with a human mind what nobody can understand, but it makes perfect sense and reconciles perfectly in eternity and in God's mind. What you need to do is believe both, accept both, and say, I don't understand how they work together. I don't have to understand. God doesn't expect us to understand everything He says. He only expects us to believe everything He says. So if there's things you don't understand in the Scripture, that's good because... uh, I don't either. I don't want to be alone. (laughs) We don't have to understand everything. We only have to believe everything it says. We have two undeniable truths that we can't seem to reconcile in our mind. That's okay. Don't worry about it. We see, but if you take out God's sovereignty then we're just wandering around out here on our own and we got a lot to worry about. Do you understand that? If we take out our responsibility, then we don't even act like Christians anymore. We sit back and do nothing. Don't worry about our testimony or our witness. So here are two reasons why we need to wake up. Now, 
we've been chosen of God. And that is the primary reason for our identity. It demonstrates our worth. It validates the fact that He loved us even before we were born. Beloved of the Lord. But let's move beyond these two reasons why we should wake up to whom we are. And let's move forward now to verse 15, 16, and 17 where we find a second implication here. A second truth or truths we can draw from the fact that we are the beloved. Number two, we need to live up to whom we are. We need to live up to whom we are. So again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now at verse 15, Paul stops talking about our salvation, and he starts talking about our Christian life and the practicalities of living as a Christian day by day. And he says this, he says, Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, those two commands, stand fast and hold the traditions, they are present tense, meaning that's it's something that just is it's an ongoing everyday obligation will never end. We have the same obligation to, to stand fast and, and today as we do tomorrow and we'll have, tomorrow we'll have it and the next day and so on. It's never going to go away. And it's in the imperative mode in the original, which means it's an absolute command of God. He's telling us, here's what you need to do. Here's what I expect out of you because of who you are. Now, that being said, Verses 15 and 16 and 17 reveal three areas of responsibility that we have because of who we are. And the first one is doctrinal stability. Now the word doctrine means teaching. It means being stable, stabilized on what's true and what's right in the Word of God, what we believe. And that's where he begins there when he says, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, don't, do not be confused when he says, stand fast and hold the traditions. The word tradition sort of gives us the thought that he's just talking about, well, it's not really what, it's not really scripture, but it's just, you know, what's traditional. Like, uh, it's traditional that we have a special service on Thanksgiving Eve every year in this church. It's just our tradition. It's just what we, the church has always done because of the history of the church. It's not scripture. It's just what we practice. It's a good thing. That's not what he's talking about here. The word in the Greek for traditions means simply what you were taught. It's translated traditions here in the New King James. 
but it means whatever has been inculcated into you. What has been delivered to you or given to you by a teacher or somebody that knows. So he's talking about God's word. Paul's talking about what he said and what he preached when he was in Thessalonica. All goes back to what we have in the scripture. Stand fast and hold to those things, the traditions as it's translated here, which you were taught. So he makes it clear here. Just don't, don't stumble over the word traditions. Which you were taught, he says, whether by word or epistle. Whether, whether it was when I was with you or whether it's something that I've written to you. Now, Paul was an apostle, one of the chosen ones of God to deliver God's inspired word, inspired and errorless word. Now, we, we encourage and minister to one another through the word because we don't deliver the word. It's been delivered. But Paul was a, one of the ones who, of course, was involved in that matter of revelation and the inspiration and so on. But we need to know what we believe. We need to hold to what we were taught that was true. He's given us some tools to make that a reality. The Word of God. Do you read it? Do you study it? The Holy Spirit, do you lean on Him to help you understand it? Those that are gifted to teach the Word, do you avail yourself of that teaching? Does it drive you back to the Scriptures for confirmation of what you're hearing? Does it affect your behavior? We have responsibility to hold fast to the truth we have been taught. Doctrinal stability. But then secondly, another area of responsibility he mentions here is emotional stability. Emotional stability, or you might even say emotional tranquility. Might be a better way of saying that. Again, let's look at the scripture. Therefore, brethren, verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and the Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good Word and work. Now, again, we're going to have to look at this word by word here, phrase by phrase. But verse 15 begins a prayer that Paul is expressing here as inspired scripture. Verse, verse 15 was two commands. Stand fast and hold. They're basically synonymous meanings there. Don't give ground. Don't back up. Don't apologize for what you believe. Don't let go of what you believe. That's a command. That's our responsibility. Now in verse 16, Paul begins to pray for the Thessalonians. <coughs> and his prayer has to do for, with their emotional stability. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us, and given us everlasting consolation. The word consolation is a word which is often translated comfort in the scripture. It is 
Also, sometimes I think translated encouragement, at least in some translations. See, God has given us the emotional strength to stand up to whatever we have to stand up to. And when Paul prays for this, Paul obviously recognizes, well, this is something God wants to do. (laughs) This is inspired scripture. And if God wants to indeed comfort us and encourage us and, and, and so forth emotionally, and he's led God to write about, about what he does and how he prays for that very fact, then it seems at first that it all just depends on God. You know, I'm just walking along, oh, Jesus, life is terrible. And then God just zaps me and I'm okay. No, it doesn't happen like that. And here's why. Because we have a role to play in whether or not we can draw upon the encouragement God has for us. Just quickly, Psalm 66 and verse 18 says, If we regard iniquity in our heart, God will not hear our prayers. So we, we and others can pray that God would, would encourage us and comfort us and strengthen us, but if we're not yielded to His will, uh, and we're not in, in His will, and we're violating His word, then we can't expect those prayers to be answered. That's our fault, not God's. I already mentioned Hebrews 11.6 uh, earlier. You have to believe. He who comes to God has to believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. We have to believe that God can answer our prayers when we pray or God's not going to answer our prayers. So the reason why we are not comforted and encouraged as much as we should be is our own fault. Otherwise, and and I could add to those two, we just don't, don't absorb the Word of God. So you put that all together. If there's any fault here, it's ours. So we do have some responsibility in this, but God is there with open arms wanting to give us encouragement every day. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting comfort and encouragement and good hope. <laughs> I preached a revival one time at a church called Good Hope. Back in West Virginia. I was there a bit of 15 people there every night, I think, but it was just a good, good bunch of people, small community. It's more than just a name. It talks and refers to assurance, settled peace in your heart. God encourages you when things are going bad and it's all based on the foundation of the assurance the promises that He's made to us. Barbara Johnson, in her book entitled Stick a Geranium in Your Hat and Be Happy, said this, and I think it's a a profound statement. She said, life is about 10% how you make it and 90% how you take it. Yeah, 90% of things that happen we, we can't possibly control, but we can control how we respond to it. 
We absolutely can. We allow disappointments and discouragement to get us down. I don't know about you, but this has been a, a difficult week. And it's, it's a difficult week as far as I'm concerned because of basically one thing, and it's not a matter of which party won the election, but it's a matter of what whoever was elected, what they believe in regard to what's right and wrong, that's all. And I thank God that he answered prayers when we got a new Supreme Court justice that was pro-life. I would desire that all of our elected officials be pro-life, but that's hardly what we have or are going to have for that matter. A wise lady sent me this text just in the last day. She says, but I have to find peace, calm, safety, assurance in the undeniable truth that God is overseeing every single person, every single action, and nothing, absolutely nothing, will happen outside His power, outside His plan, or outside His love for every person. Wow. That is exactly what the Scripture tells us. Say, well, Pastor, how can we pray for things we believe to be right and, and God doesn't seem to answer our prayers? Let me just leave you with a quick illustration. A light always shines the brightest when it's the darkest outside. You don't believe that to be true. Get out, get out the side of the city. Just, just go out in the woods somewhere. Go out somewhere in a wooded area at night. There's no streetlights or nothing, and and it's a cloudy night, and it's pitch dark. And turn on a flashlight. You see, we want God to make life easy, and God wants to make our lives bright. And the church. The church's light shined brightest, perhaps, during those first centuries when Rome drove them underground and persecuted them to the point of putting them into the arena to be eaten by lions. God knows what he's doing. We have to trust him. But let's add one more thing here. Besides doctrinal stability and emotional stability, there is ministry activity that is required. Again, in verse 17, where he says, comfort your hearts and establish you. That's, that's what God, he's praying for God to do. But in the, at the end of that verse, he says, in every good word and work. The, the reason we need to be emotionally stable and strong in the Lord, the reason we need to be doctrinally settled is so we can be active for God. In word and work. In word and deed. 
in what we say and what we do. What others observe, even in the dark of night, it's clearly observable. There's a story about a French artist. <clears throat> I assume it's really happened. French artist, his name was Paul Gustave Dore. I don't know how that's said in, in French, pardon me, but it's D-O-R-E in English. And Dore was a very, very successful and well-known artist back in the mid-1800s in Europe. He was once traveling from one country to another in Europe, and he realized when he got to the border, he'd forgot his passport, or whatever papers they were in those days, whatever they were called. And the guard refused to let him pass. And he kind of kept arguing with the guard, saying, you know, I'm... I'm uh, Gustav Gore, and you know, I need to get here, do this, whatever. And after listening to him for a while, the guard just reached over and got a piece of paper and handed him a pencil. And he said, draw those people over there. And Gore reportedly sat down, and he did so, so quickly and so perfectly and so expertly, the guard looked at it and said, you can go by. You see, it's our work that the world sees. They don't see what's in us. That's important, but the world doesn't see that. It's our work that confirms who we are. It's what we do that labels us the followers of Jesus Christ. And if we get discouraged and distraught and we fail to do what we've been put in this world to do, then we have really failed. So these three areas of responsibility, doctrinal, emotional, and ministry-wise, all covered. Now here's the thing. Here's what we are. We are swans in God's eyes. We are beloved. And we need to understand that's who we are. God's not forsaken us. God's not removed all hope. No, He gives us hope beyond what we can even possibly imagine. If we can just draw upon it. We will be, seriously, we will be more faithful, more usable, more powerful as a result of every problem, trial, tribulation, or persecution that comes at us in this life. 